This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. For nationwide shipping, wholesale prices, don't hesitate to give our friends at WCScreens.com a ring for all your screen printing and embroidery needs. You'll never have to call an audible after break in the huddle as they are, like your fighting Irish, the gold standard. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. For today's episode, we observe Native American Heritage Month by celebrating a few Native Americans who have made their mark in Notre Dame athletics, including one that not only can lay claim to breaking baseball's longtime color barrier, yes, you heard me correctly, and his name is not Jackie Robinson, but he also may have directly or indirectly inspired a longtime Major League Baseball team name. We'll also touch on a previous show topic, a Rockney-era star who is widely accepted as the first Native American to play football at Notre Dame, as well as an incoming student who will continue her athletic and academic career at the University of Notre Dame. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to the show, or I guess welcome back if you've been here before. I think I have a special program for you here today. We will be observing Native American Heritage Month, which is celebrated every November. And ah, you needn't worry, there will be plenty of tidbits for you to take home and tell all your friends to, Irish fans, that I promise you. But first, Have you listened to the previous episode? Buddy, I'm here to tell you that you should. In it, we celebrated the Gipper himself, George Gipp, and his greatest game at the University of Notre Dame. And yes, I'm talking about that Notre Dame Army game back in 1920. So I tried to not only share about how absolutely breathtaking that game was and properly contextualize it in Notre Dame football history, but also to share more about the character and the quirks of the Gipper. And there were quite a few. (laughs) He sure was an interesting guy. So please, if you haven't already, go back and give that one a spin. Also, no matter how you are listening to this today, please make sure you like and subscribe to the show. That way you can be alerted to all the latest episodes. And if your heart is feeling kind, then please leave a review. Because believe it or not, other than just showing a measure of support for the show, you're also helping other people find it as well because the reviews kind of help the algorithm in some way that I'll never understand. (laughs) But thank you, though, to those folks who donate to the show and keep us on the tracks. Yes, I am talking about the Consensus All-Americans, and they include Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. 
Not only am I eternally grateful for every last one of you, and of course you as well if you're listening, but also to WCScreens.com, our 2022 banner sponsor. If you'd like to become a Consensus All-American yourself, first of all, I would really appreciate it. Know that you can get your name called as one if you visit the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. Again, everything is so appreciated. Well, I have to share that I actually wanted this episode to be released much sooner in the month than it is being released, but... I have been saddled with a broken arm, which uh, I suffered trick-or-treating with my kids. And it's about as pitiful as it sounds. And believe it or not, though, researching, taking notes, and all the other things I have to do to put in and put together one of these episodes is actually, as I found out, much easier with two functioning hands and two functioning arms. So sadly, I did break my right arm, and I am right-handed, so this has caused me issues on a number of fronts, as you may imagine. So I tried to tough it out, actually, and uh, I spent about nine days without proper medical attention until I just couldn't take it anymore. So I'm not suggesting anyone else do that, by the way. But I will say, within those nine days contained one of the best and coolest experiences I have ever had which was witnessing firsthand Notre Dame absolutely bludgeon the Clemson Tigers 35-14 to at Notre Dame Stadium on November 5th. So among the hordes of people on the field celebrating that particular win was my wife Alicia and I. So that was a pretty special day, and uh, we weren't among those that scaled the wall and hurtled onto the field initially, but since we were in the upper bowl, if you will, uh, we were among the file down the steps in a calm single file line and calmly walk out onto the field type of bunch. But either way, it was amazing. Actually, we ran into Cam Hart and we ran into J.D. Bertrand. It was just special. And I think I'm actually going to do an episode to recap that day. Uh, one of the best in recent fighting Irish football history, if you ask me. But yeah, just to feel a little tougher in my advancing age, I guess I could tell you I did the entire thing with a broken arm. Go Irish. <laughs> so back to Native American Heritage Month. First, I want to quickly share that these are really important things to discuss and celebrate. This is a culture that is innate to our country, and I think we should go to great lengths to properly preserve and honor it. Natives stewarded the lands of North America for centuries before the European settlers moved in and, in many cases, considerably helped the settlers colonize and stave off some brutal elements during the first decades of the settlement. I think most people know the tale of the first Thanksgiving, regardless of how much validity there is there or not. It kind of does relay the sentiment. But for me personally, no, I'm, I'm not Native American. In fact, I can trace my descendants directly to Germany, England, and Ireland, mostly. But I do think it pays to have rich context and even a nuanced study of history. And I'm only speaking for myself here, but really digging into things that I may have missed from my personal perspective really helps that endeavor and pursuit. And hey, it makes for great storytelling as well. So let's tackle an overview here quickly. This is from our friends at Wikipedia. 
On August 3rd, 1990, then-President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, declared the month of November as Native American Heritage Month, and that this commemorative month aims to provide a platform for Native people in the United States of America to share their culture, traditions, music, crafts, dance, and ways and concepts of life. This gives Native people the opportunity to express their community, both city, county, and state officials their concerns and solutions for building bridges of understanding and friendship in their local area. If in a position which allows for it, Americans are encouraged to provide educational programs regarding Native American history, rights, culture, and contemporary issues to better assist them in their overall awareness. So that's again from uh, an excerpt from Wikipedia, but kind of an overview of the holiday as originally envisioned by then-President George H.W. Bush. So I guess in that vein, here we go. Let's get this program started. The first Native American athlete that we are going to profile is if those of you who are kind of looking for a current or I guess soon-to-be current Native American student-athlete to root for, I got one for you. And it was only breaking news a few days before I sat down and wrote this episode at that. So a young woman named Winter, which is W-Y-N-T-E-R, Jock, J-O-C-K, of the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, again, actually had just signed her letter of intent to play lacrosse for the Fighting Irish. Winter is a midfielder and is currently a senior at Salmon River High School in upstate New York. She lives on or near the Aguasasne Reservation, and Salmon River is actually located in Fort Covington, New York, which when I say upstate New York, I mean upstate New York. It's literal stone's throw from the Canadian border. So I did a little digging on this incoming student-athlete, and I will be the first to tell you there is a fantastic article written about her by a gentleman named Vin Gallo of the Malone Telegram in Malone, New York. One of her coaches says that Winter is, quote, always so quiet and keeps to herself, but that's never stopped her from playing loud. She plays with such an amazing amount of grace and composure, and I do think that's one of the benefits. She's not a loud, cocky person, so it's really hard to throw her off her game, end quote. So Winter is a member of the Under Armour Top 150 lacrosse players across the nation. But there were some in her native tribe and community that not only didn't think Winter should be playing lacrosse, but also that no woman should play any sport. And that's not because cultural beliefs share that women aren't good enough to play sports, but rather it's actually believed in some native cultures that women are in fact too good to play sports. So this quote comes from Winter's father, Russ, and he shared that, quote, a woman is not supposed to touch a man's lacrosse stick because we respect the power that women have, end quote. So there is that. In some respects, not only is Winter breaking down some barriers as a college-going Native American, which has the lowest college-going rate of any racial group, but not only that, only 2,100 of the 493,000 athletes across all divisions of NCAA sports, so that's divisions one, two, and three, are American Indians. All this data is per the NCAA, by the way. And you know what I'm about to tell you. I study history and not math, but I can tell you that that is far less than 1%. And 
to top it off, Winters had to battle against the idea that some women shouldn't play sports. And this is why this young woman is being profiled here today on Onward to Victory. And as for Winter, why does she play? She says, to make my family proud in my community. I know women weren't allowed to play not too long ago, so I'm really grateful that I was able to start so young, end quote. And given how important that sport is to Native American culture, I thought this was a pretty cool athlete to briefly discuss. According to research written by scholars at St. Mary's University, quote, for many Native American tribes, lacrosse wasn't just a sport, but rather part of their culture and their religion. Since the game was very rough and people could be injured or even die while playing, the Iroquois used lacrosse as a way of training young men to be warriors, and the game was used to settle disputes without actually going to war. This is why lacrosse is nicknamed the Little Brother of War. Lacrosse also had religious significance among some tribes. It was called the Creator's Game, and it helped the players put in their lives into perspective and teach lessons, some of the most valuable lessons being that everyone has struggles and opponents, and the key to survival is friends and allies, end quote. So I hope Winter picked up a few extra fans ahead of her Notre Dame career here today. She certainly not only brings a wealth of ability to the women's lacrosse team, which is important, but as I mentioned, culture as well. After giving a rose to an incoming Fighting Irish student-athlete, next I'd like to give major props to Rockney-era center, Washington State native, and Snohomish Indian Tommy Yar. This is a bit of a double dip as we have talked about Yar on the show already, way back during episode 43 in May of 2021 on an episode called Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. Actually, just an installment in the miniseries of Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. But he is noteworthy, at least one of the reasons he is noteworthy is because he was really the first open and identifiable Native American to play football at Notre Dame. So Thomas Cornelius Yar, uh, better known as Tommy, was born on December 4th, 1908 in the Puget Sound region of Washington State. His mother, Josephine, was a full-blooded Snohomish native, and his father, Thomas, was actually an Irish immigrant from Belfast. But sadly, Josephine died of a heart attack when Tommy was a teenager, and so at that age, and even as a youngster, he worked long and hard hours on the family's dairy farm. And if you go to the Jefferson County History books, which is where the Yars hailed, there are a few photographs of Tommy's father standing next to a Holstein dairy cow, uh, as well as a shot of the family homestead. They're really cool and easy to find if you jump over to Google. But the scrappy Tommy grew into quite a bit of muscle and sinew and became a highly successful three-sport athlete at Chimicum High School. And uh, by muscle and sinew, I mean he was a 5'11", 195-pound bag of bricks. Just absolutely stout, Mr. Tommy Yar was. Uh, Aside from being tough as old shoe leather and strong as an ox, he also moved exceedingly well on his feet. And Notre Dame football head coach, Knut Rockne, situated over 2,200 miles away in South Bend, really wanted the half-native, half-Irishman for his football team after being tipped off to Yar by way of a Notre Dame alum living in Washington, 
just as a quick aside, Rockne, among many other things that he kind of evolutionized, he had a system, a nationwide system of what he called bird dog scouts. So these bird dogs just kind of scouted their local areas, and if they found any promising prospects, they'd uh, wire back to South Bend and let Rockne know. Believe it or not, this was not something that many programs were doing, but Rockne sure took advantage of what was a nationwide network of Notre Dame alums. But anyways, that particular Notre Dame alum actually helped sponsor Yar and get him to Notre Dame. So he like bought you know his train ticket and gave him some food money and all that. So it was a pretty elaborate system. After a successful 1929 campaign when Yar was a sophomore, he, he played a lot of meaningful snaps as a rotational player, he became the full-time starting center in 1930 which of course not only happens to be the first season for the brand new Notre Dame Stadium, but also the final one for the vaunted and legendary Coach Rockney. We've talked about that 1930 team a few times on the show, particularly through the lens of the fantastic fullback, Jumping Joe Savoldi, an All-American who was actually kicked off the team in the middle of the season and kicked out of Notre Dame for divorcing his wife. Uh, Rockney kind of tried to help cover it up, but didn't really fight the campus officials and priests about it. Jumping Joe was kicked off the team and again, completely expelled from campus. So one of these days we will revisit Jumping Joe again because he is absolutely fantastic. But Yar was the starting center for that team. And the paper didn't shy from approaching Yar with enough nuance to acknowledge both his ethnicity and his race, but there was certainly a kind of a hierarchy to them. So shortly after Yar was named the starting center of the 1930 team, the Indianapolis Times and other, other major papers pasted a large photo of Tommy on the front cover or of their sports page, if you will, with the headline of Big Heap Irish Indian plays center for Notre Dame. And the accompanying article reads as follows. Two years ago, there came to Notre Dame a big, broad-shouldered fellow from the town of Chimicum on the plains of northwest Washington State. The lad was Tommy Yar, one-quarter Indian. His grandmother was a member of the Cherokee Indian tribe in the Northwest Territory years and years ago. He had plenty of fight, courage, and the ability to make friends, but it seemed there was something else, a more impelling power behind him. Sure it was. He possessed the wit of an Irishman. An Irishman, yes, for it was soon discovered that Mr. Yar, father of the now famous Tommy, was born and reared in Dublin, Ireland. Tommy Yar's well-balanced proportion of brain and brawn, coupled with his natural and developed ability, have brought him up from the shock troops of 1929 to a permanent position on the first stringers this year. The article kind of continues to go on and on, but it is kind of fascinating, and there is a lot to unpack, which we won't do in its entirety here, but there is kind of these two separate sets of attributes. One is kind of attributed to his native background and the other to his Irish background, and it's very clear which are deemed more attractive. And I think the reader today picks up on that quickly, which means the reader then would pick up on it even more quickly, and I don't think I'm misreading that. But also I found it interesting that, of course, that he's called a Cherokee and that his grandmother was a Cherokee many, many years ago. But in reality, he was very much brought up in a lot of that Snohomish Indian culture. So 
Anyways, just a lot of interesting tidbits in that little write-up, but Yar had a fantastic 1930 season, which saw Notre Dame win a national championship, and he was actually elected captain ahead of the 1931 season in January of that year. But of course, he could not have known at that time after being elected captain was that it would be without his head coach, Rockney. So after Rockney was tragically killed in a plane crash in March of 1931, it was Yar his final appointed captain, who served as one of the pallbearers during his funeral. The other pallbearers included Marty Brill, Marchie Schwartz, Tom Conley, Frankie Caradeo, and Larry Moon Mullins, which that's a real who's who of this time during program history. But without their coach, the 1931 team, captained by Yar, went 6-2-1, and one, with their two losses coming the final two games of the season, against USC and Army. But it was during the second game of the season against Northwestern that Tommy had three interceptions on defense, three in a single game. At the end of the season, Tommy was named to the All-American list, and it was his teammate, Frank Leahy, who you probably have heard of as a legendary Irish head coach, said this of Tommy, quote, He came up the hard way at Notre Dame. He came from a little town in the state of Washington with no reputation but he fought his way up to the top by his willingness to trade a lot of hard effort for success. After playing for the Chicago Cardinals, which is kind of a precursor to today's Arizona Cardinals in 1933, Tommy was the head coach of John Carroll University in the Cleveland area in 1934 and 1935. Sadly, while working in Chicago, Tommy suffered his third final and fatal heart attack in December 1941. He was just 33 years old, and he left behind a widow and three small children. He was, however, formally inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 1987, and before that, he was inducted into the American Indian Athletic Hall of Fame in 1982. And I'll be right back with the story of Louis Sokalexis right after this. Let's fire this next one up on June 16th, 1897. So I guess if we're to look at the topics of this episode, we're kind of working in reverse chronological order. We're talking baseball now, folks, but rest assured, there is a hook. But if you know me well, you know I love baseball. So in 1897, the Cleveland Spiders, who were kind of the precursor to the Cleveland Blues, then the Cleveland Naps, then the Cleveland Indians, and now the Cleveland Guardians, had the toast of the entire American League in rookie Louis Sokalexis. Sock, as he was better known as, was a legitimate five-tool player. And if you aren't big into baseball parlance, he could hit for average, one. Hit for power, two. Had speed on the base paths, three. Had a magnificent throwing arm, four. And was an exemplary fielder, five. Most baseball people will tell you that if a guy has two or three tools, he's pretty daggone good. But Sock had all five in spades. Sock Alexis had burst on the scene with the Spiders during the summer of 1897, 
And as far as the average Major League Baseball fan was concerned, he came out of essentially thin air. Sports writers later opined that he could slug like Babe Ruth, was faster and a better base runner than Ty Cobb, was a better outfielder than Tris Speaker himself, and he could throw like Bob Musil. Oh, and also, Sock Alexis was a Penobscot Indian, and he was the only non-white player in the entire league. And there was no doubt, mostly because the newspapers of the day were very candid and even brazen about it, that he was given the same treatment, and perhaps sometimes even worse, than Jackie Robinson received 50 years later when he was breaking the color barrier with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, I bet you know that story. But what is far less known is the story of Louis Sock Alexis. And I could make a very spirited argument, and I think a successful one at that, that it was Sock Alexis who actually kind of broke the color barrier about 50 years before Jackie Robinson. Now, he was the first Native American, at least the first, again, open and identifiable Native American to play Major League Baseball. And there would be others that followed him that arrived on the scene after Sock, but before Jackie Robinson. So, but sure, it's a little different, but you are talking about a situation where a guy is of different race than everybody else in the league. So it is kind of the same, but Sock is carrying a batting average of over 350 into that June 16th, 1897 ball game. So let's snap back to that date. The attention of the native Sock Alexis received really brought out some vexation among fans and other players. But regardless, the sensational rookie and the rest of his spider mates were slated to square off against the New York Giants and their ace, Amos Rusi, at Polo Grounds that day. Rusi was nicknamed the Hoosier Thunderbolt, an homage not just to his Indiana roots, he was from uh, Martinsville if memory serves, but the fact that he threw absolute fireballs. In fact, he was one of baseball's earliest strikeout artists, leading the National League in the stat five times in the six years between 1890 and 1895. And ahead of the game, Rusi promised that he'd strike the damn Indian out, his words. And as harsh as they may sound, please be mindful, though, that this is less than a decade removed from the massacre at Wounded Knee. So when considering where the national sentiment was, that is important. But I bring that up only because I am very intentional bringing up sentiment uh, against immigrants, the Irish, or Catholics from time to time on this pod. So context is very important. So folks packed the polo grounds in New York City because they wanted to see the showdown between, well, one of the best pitchers of the era in Rusi and the 25-year-old hotshot Native American rookie, Sock Alexis. So when he came up in the first inning, uh, the place reached a near fever pitch of derisive war whoops, racial slurs, and taunts raining down on Sock Alexis. I mean, mind you, that could be expected. I mean, he was routinely called a savage in the newspaper, so I guess what'd you expect to happen at the ballpark? But he was so stoic, and he calmly walked to the batter's box. But would Rusi strike the damn Indian out? So what's interesting also about Rusi is he not only has a straight heater that I had kind of touched on before, but he also has one of the best curveballs of his era as well. So with two outs and the bases empty, Sock walked up to the plate and got into his stance. 
Sox stared at the man whose fastball was so quick they moved the mound back 10 feet for the 1893 season so hitters could actually see Rusi's fastball whizzing at them. And uh, Rusi stared back at Sock. While accounts don't necessarily agree, I'll go with Sock biographer Ed Rice, who wrote that it was the very first pitch out of Rusi's hand, his hard, devastating curveball. A pitch that, honestly, Sock couldn't consistently hit very well, and Rusi knew it, that Lewis Flat unloaded on it. Crack! The ball exploded and leapt off Sock's back, and it instantly hushed the crowd. He had pulled the ball to right field, and it sailed and kept going and going and going. We are talking impossibly far. Author Luke Salisbury shared that some thought the ball had traveled in excess of 600 feet. That's a moonshot. Even if it wasn't 600 feet, I think you get the idea. So Sock rounded the bases to a stunned crowd and a stunned Rusi, and the Spiders won the game 7-2. And coverage of that game was carried across the nation in the newspapers. Sock Alexis was a bona fide star at this point. And there were no Rookie of the Year awards given in 1897, but rest assured, Sock would have gotten some consideration for it as he hit 338 with 94 hits and 16 stolen bases in just 66 games. When he was available, he just dazzled. But we'll touch on that in a moment. Before we go any further chronologically with Sock, can you guess where he was three months before his showdown with Rusi? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He was a student at the University of Notre Dame. Sock Alexis had actually been a college star for Holy Cross College in Massachusetts from 1894 through 1896. Now, I'm far from an expert on this facet of baseball history, but based on what I do know, I believe him to be the best college baseball player in the country at this time. And he hit 444 during his time at Holy Cross, according to my pal Ed Rice. 444 is awful good. So he transferred with his Holy Cross buddy and fellow baseball player Mike Powers to the University of Notre Dame in February of 1897. And looking through old school newspapers, we know that Sock Alexis was housed at Brownson Hall, which a number of the famous Notre Dame athletes would have been housed at throughout history. It was typically reserved for older students, which Sock would have certainly been. And for you campus historians, Brownson Hall was located just behind or to the north of the main building. When it was finally demolished in early 2020, it was easily the second oldest building on Notre Dame's campus as construction for Brownson Hall started in 1855. That's an old building. But when the Notre Dame baseball team began banding together ahead of the 1897 season, Sock Alexis was immediately the most promising prospect. And why not? He was much more seasoned than most of the other collegians at 25 years old. And of course, he already had a successful couple seasons at Holy Cross. And again, at the 25, I bring up 25 intentionally, it wasn't uncommon during that time for students to attend college much more older than they do today. 
But when Sock got to Notre Dame's campus, this is according to Notre Dame historian Cappy Gagnon, he was immediately the best athlete at the university. And he was kind of looked at like a Jim Thorpe figure, he said. Jim Thorpe was a Native American athlete. Also, I have a story about him to share a little bit later. But when Sock first went out for the Notre Dame club, the folks were smitten. In an issue of the school paper, they announced that, quote, a new candidate for center field, Sock Alexis, came out for the first time on Thursday last. His batting, fielding, and throwing were remarkable, end quote. So the Minims, or kind of those elementary schoolers on campus, even pretended to be Sock Alexis when they were playing their schoolyard baseball games, especially if they were suiting up as an outfielder, according to the May 8th. 1897 issue of the Scholastic. And who among us hasn't suited up for an athletic game or just played in the driveway or in the front yard and kind of pretended like we were somebody else? That was those minims at the time, and they were pretending to be Sock Alexis. A couple weeks into spring training, head baseball coach Frank Herring, who we talked about in episode 61, by the way, decided to do a little competition for the boys, scoring them on facets of the game such as fielding and base running. According to the March 6, 1897 issue of the school paper, the winner, whoever had the highest cumulative score of all the ball players on the team, would actually receive a new bat and a new bat bag from Coach Herring. And wouldn't you know it, Sock Alexis tied for first place. So interestingly, an anecdote that hasn't seen the light of day, though I did confirm with Sock Alexis biographer Ed Rice that he was in fact aware of this. Ed, who wrote the book Baseball's First Indian about Sock, was of course aware, but here you go. Something that hasn't been shared widespread was Sock never suited up for a Notre Dame baseball game during his time on campus. We'll talk about that here in a second. But he did play in a single sporting event as a student at Notre Dame. A single game of basketball. This is again per the March 6th issue of the Scholastic School newspaper, quote, Carroll and Soren Halls were the basketball team scheduled to play on the afternoon of February 28th. But as several of the Soren men were unable to come out, the Brownson team played instead. Brownson, of course, is where Sock lived. But this was the first appearance of Sock Alexis at Notre Dame as a basketball player. He did not seem to know the fine points of the game so well as some of the other men, but he made a good showing nonetheless, end quote. So Carroll Hall actually won the game over Sock and the Brownson Hall crew 14-2. Lewis actually accidentally tipped a ball into his own basket, so while he did score, it was technically a bucket for Carroll Hall. So how about that? Lewis Sock Alexis seeing action in a single Notre Dame inner hall basketball game. But Lewis's time in South Bend came to an abrupt end on March 17th when he and another student were arrested for public displays of drunkenness. While the other student's identity was kept out of the papers because he, quote, stood in high social circles around the city and was, quote, a respected student, Sock's name was all over the local papers. He was expelled from school. University President Father Andrew Morrissey was none too pleased. But what had come to light was that Lewis had already signed a professional contract to play for Cleveland, which would begin immediately after the college season had concluded. 
which kind of really tells you that Lewis wanted to be in South Bend, kind of foregoing a professional career for a season spent with Notre Dame. But, however, with no college to play for, Sock then immediately reported to Cleveland after being expelled by Notre Dame in mid-March. So all told, his time in South Bend was over, and it lasted just about five weeks or so. After he got his first paycheck in Cleveland, this is worth noting, he actually graciously wired the university what he owed them for his time there. I believe it was either $16 or $26, I can't remember, but Sock Alexis did pay back the University of Notre Dame. But however, his incident in South Bend foreshadowed essentially the rest of his life. Sadly, Sock Alexis suffered from crippling alcoholism. And even among the start of his fantastic rookie season in Cleveland, he still suffered from misuse terribly. And eventually, it did catch up with him. Over the 4th of July weekend in 1897, mind you, this is just a couple weeks after his showdown with Rusi, his most famous game as a professional, in less than four months from being expelled from Notre Dame, Sock either jumped or fell out of a second-story window and either broke or severely sprained his ankle. When considering Sock as a baseball player, speed was the biggest facet of his game. I mean, he was nicknamed, for better or for worse, the Deerfoot of the Diamond, after all. And without his speed, he just fell apart as a ball player. And he never really returned to baseball in a full capacity. He languished for two more seasons, but only made it into 21 games in 1898, and only seven in 1899. That 1899 Cleveland Spiders team is actually the worst team in baseball history. So three years, just 94 games for his career, 66 of which were played his first season. He just unraveled that quickly. And there were no doubt that the guy shouldered the racial jeers and taunts publicly as well as you could, but I have no doubt that that, and of course a predisposition to alcoholism, really upended him. And boy, the papers had an absolute heyday with playing up the alcoholic Indian trope, as you might imagine. There was little to no effort to help him through his obvious personal struggles, which pretty much stuck with him again for the rest of his life. He struggled with poverty and vagrancy in addition to alcoholism. At the end of the day, he still remains one of baseball's greatest what-ifs. But I still insist that many who know the story of Sock Alexis, the first open and identifiable Native American to play the game at the major league level may not realize his 1897 season, the one that he became a sensation, started in South Bend. So Sock eventually did return to Old Town to the Penobscot Reservation for good after finally washing out of baseball after a few stints in the minor leagues in the late 1890s and the early 1900s. After he didn't return from one of his logging shifts, one of his fellow loggers actually found him dead 
in the forest on Christmas Eve 1914. He was just 42 years old. Which begs the question, was Louis Sock Alexis the inspiration behind the name the Cleveland Indians? Well, it gets a little sticky and frankly personal. This is my favorite baseball team I'm talking about. Uh, but the answer is, and this is all my opinion, so bear with me, a very flimsy kind of. It's true his name was mentioned a couple times in passing when the team changed their name in 1915 which I suppose for some, this is significant enough. However, it wouldn't be mentioned again for several decades, and I personally think after reading all the papers of the day around this time, the Native American mascot kind of just gave the sports writers, again of the day, plenty of baked-in ideas for stories and headlines. Like, for instance, they wrote about, you know, so-and-so brought his tomahawk to the plate for the Indians, or so-and-so collected the scalps of the other team for the Indians that day. I think there may have been a small dose of Sock Alexis, but also a very, very, very heavy dose of reminisce of the 1914 Boston Braves, who were kind of the miracle team from the season before, and they kind of made Native American nicknames all the rage. Mind you, again, this was before any merchandising, so teams kind of did jump from nickname to nickname kind of willy-nilly. Most teams didn't stick with their nicknames. Famously, the, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers actually were, at one point, the Brooklyn Bridegrooms. And <laughs> I don't think people realize that's the same franchise because it just sounds so different. It was very common that teams changed nicknames. But even if one wants to say the team was named after Sock, that's fine. I do think it is a bit misguided, but it has unquestionably brought additional coverage to the Sock Alexis story, which is a positive. I would just certainly counter that if you read about how the name came to be, how it was discussed at the time, you'll really see there's little honor in it, and that certainly diminished by not bothering to mention Sock for several decades after the name came to be. And I might show a few cards here, but this is my favorite team I am talking about. But the adoption of the logo of Chief Wahoo, one that virtually every native group in the country, particularly the Penobscot, whom Sock Alexis belonged to, disapproved of, that also further diminishes the claim that the team was named to honor Sock Alexis. I will just point out something very simply here, that to name something after someone and to honor them can be two completely different things, and that is, I believe, what we see here. Perhaps the team and baseball should, would be much better served as positioning Sock Alexis in a spot, just as we did today, in bringing them up as much more of a racial barrier breaker, a precursor to Jackie Robinson because they faced nearly the exact same things. Long live Sock. And I'll be back with the day Canute Rockney met Jim Thorpe to send us on home. properly attribute this next anecdote, it comes from chapter 24 of none other than Rockney of Ages, written by my pal and friend of the show, Jeff Harrell. Now, Jim Thorpe was 
one of the best, if not the best, athletes of the first half of the 20th century. He was a Native American athlete who famously battled a lot of prejudice, but he was just so daggone talented, he could not be denied. He was absolutely fantastic, and legendary Notre Dame coach Knut Rockney actually had the opportunity to play against Thorpe in 1915 while Rockney was a member of the Massillon Tigers and Thorpe was a member of the rival Canton Bulldogs. So 1915, this would have been after Knut's Notre Dame football playing career was over. He was an assistant coach, but it would have been before he took over as head coach. So here you go. This quote was directly lifted from Rockney of Ages. In a review of my playing career, one day stands out above all the others. The day I was playing professional football and tried to stop Jim Thorpe. My job was to tackle him, which I did two times successfully, but with much suffering. After the second time, Thorpe smiled genially at me. Be a good boy, he said. Let Jim run. (laughs) Thorpe took the ball again. I went at him. Never before have I received such a shock. It was as if a locomotive hit me, followed by a 10-ton truck rambling over my remains. I lay on the field of battle while he pounded out a 40-yard run for a touchdown. He came back, helped me to my feet, and then patted me gingerly on the back. Smiling broadly, he said, That's a good boy, Canute. You let Jim run. And that is absolute gold from Jeff Harrell's Rockney of ages. So appreciate you chronicling that one, Jeff, for all of us to enjoy. Well, I hope you really enjoyed this offering. Far different than many of the offerings here on the show. Hey, we talked a lot of baseball, but I know that the listeners of this show will appreciate a good story, and I think the one of Louis Sokalexis is a fantastic story. So with that, I'm going to sign off. I'd like to thank the Consensus All-Americans, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and as well as our banner sponsor for the 2022 season, WCScreens.com. The artist behind our theme song, the song's called Knute Rockney, and it's by Joseph Rakish, available on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, however you listen to music, go give it a spin. And I'd also like to thank you for sticking around for this edition, the 72nd in show history the one aimed to commemorate Native American Heritage Month. We profiled incoming student and women's lacrosse player Winter Jock. We also profiled Tommy Yar, Rockdy era center and All-American, the first open Native American to play football at the University of Notre Dame, and the enthralling story, yet tragic tale, of Louis Sock Alexis. And I really hope you enjoyed. This has been Onward to Victory a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) 